Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love you to open it now to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is the last chapter in a three-chapter-long answer to a question that the Corinthians had asked Paul regarding food that had been offered to idols. In chapter 8, Paul conceded a great deal of their argument in favor of eating these foods and in favor of their attending these pagan feasts and festivals. After all, they were absolutely right. An idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. So they knew that there was no reality behind the worship that was associated with this food, and therefore they knew that they would be no worse off if they did not eat and no better off if they did. Food does not commend us to God one way or the other. So you're absolutely right, Paul says, but you failed to consider the weaker brother. And so Paul goes on to introduce a principle of loving consideration that must be treated as a sort of trump card when making these sorts of decisions. In essence, Paul says, a mature Christian does not do all that he understands, rather he or she does all only that which protects and serves the weaker brother. And then Paul illustrated that principle by reference to his own life. Paul certainly didn't do all that he was allowed to do. Paul did only that which served the cause of Christ and that which nurtured and protected the health of the believers entrusted to his care. That's real maturity, Paul says. And that is the attitude you need to have if you want to be assured of receiving an eternal reward. That's where Paul goes next. He transitioned to this related theme in the final verses of chapter 9. He said, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So I'm playing to win, Paul says, and therefore, just like an athlete, I am not concerned about my food and drink. I'm not obsessed with my creature comforts. On the contrary, I am living an exceedingly disciplined life in pursuit of an imperishable crown, and so should you be. Because not everyone who is blessed, not everyone who has received grace and help, not everyone who's got off to a good start crosses the finish line and receives the prize for which he has competed. Many people lose it all. Many people end their course in shame because they never learned to exercise discipline and self-control. That is the theme of chapter 10. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness." So Paul is making a comparison here between the experiences of the Old Testament church and the experiences of the New Testament church. And he uses particular language and phrases in order to make that clear. 
talks about people being baptized into Moses and eating spiritual food and drinking spiritual drink in order to highlight this particular typology. And that is exactly what this is. It is spiritual typology. In fact, that's the very word that Paul uses in verse 6. He uses the Greek word tupos, which means pattern, shape, type, or example. The idea is that the stories in the Old Testament were written down and preserved because they established the general pattern of God's gracious interaction with his people. F.F. Bruce puts it this way. He says, The pattern of divine revelation, human disobedience, and divine judgment manifested in the Israelites' experience from Egypt to Canaan is reproduced in the New Testament era. Closed quote. So, our situation is very similar to theirs, Paul is saying. Like them, we have been baptized into Jesus Christ, our covenant mediator. David Pryor explains that expression. He says, The Israelites were baptized into Moses. The Christians of Corinth were baptized into Christ. Both actions denoted allegiance. But the Christians were not working out the practical implications of that allegiance. Closed quote. So that's the issue. Making a one-time profession of allegiance doesn't matter very much if you do not continue to live out the implications of that profession on an ongoing basis. The Israelites were baptized into Moses, but then they give the lie to their profession through their subsequent participation in pagan idolatry. Don't be like that. Make sure that you are giving daily evidence of your exclusive loyalty and allegiance to Christ. That's the point he's making here. Now, along the way, he says something really interesting that we should take note of. He says, talking about the Israelites in the desert, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. That's verse 4. That's pretty remarkable. In the Old Testament, it was very common to identify that rock as God, or maybe better to say, it was very common to call God our rock, or the rock, out of the understanding that the rock that gave them water was given by God and identified with God. It was a sign of his presence and sustaining grace among his people. But now here, Paul says, that was Jesus. Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the presence and sustaining grace of God among his people. That's an incredibly important Christological statement. So these people, in a sense, had a participation in Christ even in the wilderness. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, and as a result, they died in the desert. They did not receive their inheritance. Verse 6. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. The pillar New Testament commentary is helpful here. It says, the word Paul uses for examples provides the background for the concept of typology, the understanding that patterns found in persons, actions, events, and institutions 
can be expected to find correspondences with some eschatological heightening in God's future redemptive works. Meaning that nothing better predicts the shape of the future than the shape of the past. That's what Paul's saying here. He is saying that if you want to know what will happen to the New Testament church, if she develops a casual attitude towards sexual immorality, or if she dares to waver in her exclusive loyalty to God through faith in Christ, then all you need to do is review the history of the Old Testament church. There you will see exactly how the Lord is likely to respond. When, when you think that you can worship God any way you like, even adopting pagan forms and, and even permitting sexual immorality, you are summoning the exact same judgments and punishments that were meted out upon the people in Exodus 32. That's the reference in verse 7. And if you think you can participate in these pagan feasts and festivals, that you can sit around the Lord's table and then go engage in drunken debauchery around the table of demons— then you're going to experience the same sort of discipline faced by the people in Numbers 25. Go and read that story. God commanded the chiefs of the people to be hung publicly, and then for good measure, he sent a plague that killed tens of thousands of people. Is that what you want? That's the question he's asking in verse 8. In verse 9, he refers to the grumbling incident in Numbers 21. We know that is the story of the bronze serpent. He probably chose that story because there, too, the issue was that the people were not content with the food and drink that God had supplied. They wanted more. And that unchecked desire led them to test the Lord, and they were punished. Is that what you want, Paul asks? In verse 10, he refers to the story in Numbers 14, when the people said that they wanted to go back to Egypt. They liked it better there. There was more and better food there. Do you remember that? God wasn't happy with that. And the people were killed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as examples to us. The Old Testament, Paul says, is a warning to us. It is telling us that for want of discipline, for want of self-control, an entire church forfeited its inheritance and summoned the wrath and discipline of God. Is that what you want? Because that's what you're headed for, Paul says. Verse 12, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. So it's not as if you're facing unprecedented tests and challenges, Paul says. These are the temptations that are common to us all. Food and sex has been the lure placed upon many a demonic hook in the past. You aren't the first people to have to fight through that, Paul says. But take heart. God will never allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. The implication being that we are able as Christians to resist temptation. We are never overpowered. If we sin, it is because we choose to sin. In Christ, believers are able to sin, able not to sin. That's a promise, Paul says. And God is faithful so you can be sure of this, you will never be overwhelmed by temptation. God will limit the test, and he will give you the strength, and he will provide some means of escape from it, that you may be able to endure it. Praise the Lord. Verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? 
because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offered to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? In moving towards his conclusion here, Paul challenges the Corinthians to evaluate his own logic. See if I've reasoned correctly, he says. Let's let's take what we all know and apply it to the case at hand. The Lord's Supper. Is it not a participation in Christ? Does it not in some way unite all those who partake of it? Does it not connect us to Christ and to one another? Of course, the grammar here indicates that Paul expects a positive answer. Yes, we are joined to God in communion. And and yes, we are joined to one another. Okay, then. Well, turn that around. What do you suppose happens when you attend these pagan feasts? When the priest prays to Serapis before killing the animal, and when a blessing is said over the meat before it is served to the guests sitting around that common table, what do you think is going on there? You are being united to the other participants, and you are being connected to the spiritual power that is being honored in the prayers and the blessings. Now, in case they thought that he was contradicting here what he said in chapter 8 about there being no God but God, Immediately, he clarifies that in verses 19 and 20. Am I saying that these pagan gods are real gods? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offered to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Look, the situation here is that these Corinthians assumed that they were beyond the charge of idolatry because they knew that there were, in fact, no pagan gods. If there are no pagan gods, then there can be no idolatry, right? But the problem is there have never been pagan gods. There were no pagan gods in Numbers 25 or Exodus 32 either. But there was still idolatry. Idolatry is just the means by which the devil tempts us away from our exclusive loyalty to God and Christ. It may be an icon carved in stone, but let's be honest, it was more about the beautiful young women even back in Numbers 25, wasn't it? And so, by hook or by crook, the devil seeks to come between us and Christ. It's all about loyalty. It's all about allegiance. Are you or are you not exclusively devoted to God through the person and work of Christ? That's the issue. And it is an issue of great consequence. In verse 22, Paul is referring to Deuteronomy 32, 21, wherein God declares, They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. Did you hear that? God concedes that there is no actual God behind their pagan idols. And yet he says, they have provoked me to anger with what is no God. The idol isn't the point. The point is that through the idol, the people have demonstrated their lack of commitment and contentment in their relationship with the Lord. That is the issue. And as a result, God removed his power and protection from them. He gave them over to the power of their enemies. And that is what you risk, Paul says, if you continue on this reckless course. Verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, 
but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. Leon Morris provides a remarkably helpful and succinct summary of Paul's teaching here. He says, What the believer eats does not matter. That he avoids giving offense does. Closed quote. So, don't offend God, don't offend the weaker brother, and don't offend the church of Christ as a whole. That is the issue. Now, Paul attempts to apply that issue to a variety of circumstances that would have regularly arisen. At the market, he says, don't ask questions about the origin of the meat that you're buying. Because if you ask and are told that it has been sacrificed to an idol, now you're on the hook. Now, if you eat it, it will look like you've engaged in idolatry. That could offend the weaker brother. That could affect the witness of the church. So don't do that. Don't ask any questions. You know very well that it's just meat. And if you can give thanks to God over it in your house, you're good to go. The issue isn't contamination. The issue is association. Now, as for social events, when you're at a friend's house, eat whatever's put before you without asking any questions. However, if someone makes a point of telling you that this cut of meat came from such and such a temple, then let it pass you by. You're a vegetarian tonight. So be it. As Paul said in chapter 8, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. It's a very small price to pay to avoid giving offense and to avoid even the appearance of associating with pagan idols. In verse 31, Paul provides an overall summary. So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. When you're making these decisions, think first about the glory and centrality of Almighty God. Does this put God first? Does this decision draw me closer or push me further away from my first love, my love for God in Jesus Christ? Yes or no? That's where you start. And then from there, you think about offense. Is this going to be a stumbling block to my Jewish brother? Is this going to hinder my Greek sister? Is this going to build up the church of Jesus Christ? Because that is the chief concern of the mature believer. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have first-hand, on-the-ground experience with.
Mile one is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 